You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you're here with us this morning. If you'd turn with me to the book of Exodus, that's where we'll be studying this morning. For those of you who like to follow along on a phone app or anything, we like to use the Version Bible app, and we actually have live notes in there. So if you use that app, go into the live section, you'll find notes, a lot of stuff that's on the screen, plus some extra stuff that you can interact with and follow along with so that you can get the most out of the study. Now this morning we are continuing our study called Be Set Free, which is a study we started before before the new year. And we, for the month of December, we did a break from this study, and we did a study called Love Came Down, which was focused on the incarnation, and it was focused on Jesus and the message of Christmas. Well, now in the new year, we're back to our study of Exodus. We're going through it uh, chapter by chapter, and we believe that's one of the ways that we can best hear God's voice through His Word. So our study is called Be Set Free, and we're going through the book of Exodus one of the sections we get into now is the section where they've come across the Red Sea, and this is really now one of the uh, most interesting and I think exciting sections in the book, and it has a whole lot that God speaks to us through it. So would you please bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are God who speaks to us, and we thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that your word never comes back void, and this morning as you, your word goes out as we read it, as we consider it, as we study it, Lord, we pray that it would have all of its desired effects in our lives that you have for it. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning. We devote our, our time, our attention, our hearts, and we ask that you'd speak to us, that we'd hear your word, and that you would do work inside of us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read our text this morning. We'll read part of it, and then we're going to go through it. So uh, we're going to be at the end of chapter 15 and then going into chapter 16. So we'll begin reading from Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw the log into the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, I will... If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. And they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. In verse 1 of chapter 16, they came out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law. This is God's word. So as we come to this section here in Exodus chapter 15 and 16, uh, we, we've just come through the section where we've seen the people of Israel experience some of the most amazing events, maybe even in all of history, as God has set them free from slavery 
in Egypt. Of course, we saw that there were ten plagues, kind of natural disasters through which God revealed himself and, and through which God persuaded Pharaoh to let the people go. Then we saw that after the ten plagues, there was the Passover, this amazing thing where God saved them by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And then God led them out of Egypt and he led them through the desert with a cloud by day to give them shade and a pillar of fire by night to lead the way. And then when Pharaoh's army came barreling down on them, bearing against them, because they said, you know, Pharaoh kind of came to it and said, wait a second, I just let go my entire slave workforce. What was I thinking? So Pharaoh's coming after them to take them back into slavery. And they're backed up against the sea. They've got their back to the sea. They've got cliffs on both sides of them. There's no way out. An army straight ahead coming for them. And that's when God did maybe the greatest miracle. He split the Red Sea in half. And the people of Israel crossed over on dry land. Amazing miracle. And after they had crossed over, God caused the walls of water to come crashing back down on the Egyptian army. And the people of Israel were set free at last. And of course, what we saw last week is the way that they responded. It's the way anybody would respond in their right mind. They responded by rejoicing and praising God. They had kind of an impromptu worship service right there on the beach, the eastern shore of the Red Sea. And they were finally free and they rejoiced in that. They were now on their way to the promised land. Now, just think about this. If you had experienced all of those things, you'd seen God do those amazing things, you had walked across the floor of the Red Sea on dry ground, and you had seen God save you in these miraculous ways. Now, surely, after seeing all those things happen, you could never doubt God again, right? Like, you would never doubt that God is able, that God is faithful, that God loves you, and he can do anything to save you. You would never doubt God again after seeing that, right? Well, you'd think that, and they probably thought that exact same thing themselves. But as we see here, it only took three days. Three days and a couple of challenges. And some, some people went, uh, these same people, they went from faith to freaking out. They went from confidence to complaining. They went from praising to panicking. They went from glorying to grumbling. And they got angry and bitter against God. Now, you wouldn't happen to know anybody like that, would you? I, I do. I saw that guy in the mirror this morning. Maybe you saw that person too. Because in the people of Israel, what we have is a reflection of ourselves. We have a reflection of our own tendencies. And so as we look at this text today, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about why does this happen? And what does this tell us about ourselves? And what does it tell us about God? And we're going to see something else though. Maybe the most amazing thing. We're going to see an amazingly different response from God than what we would have ever expected to see. So the title of today's message is Panic in the Desert. And, and here's what we're going to learn from this text. First of all, the desert doesn't always mean a wrong turn. Secondly, we're going to talk about how to fight myopia and amnesia. Thirdly, we're going to talk about uh, just enough and right on time. And finally, we're going to talk about the bread that does not perish. All right, so let's talk about this. The desert doesn't always mean a wrong turn. So there, there they were hanging out on the beach, having this impromptu worship service, praising God. So they're dancing. They had musical instruments. They were having a celebration. It's great to hang out on the beach and celebrate how God has set you free. But now God says to them, okay, now it's time to keep going. Now it's time to continue on, to take the next step. You see, saving you, he would say, God would have said to them, saving you, bringing you out of Egypt, setting you free from bondage, that wasn't the end. That was just the beginning of all the things that I have planned for you. 
I've got a lot more. I want to lead you into the promised land. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you so many things. I've got so much in store for you. Bringing you out of Egypt wasn't the end. That was just the beginning. You know, as a, as a church, we have a theme for this, this next year, 2017. Our theme is forward to what lies ahead. And because we believe that God would say the same thing to us that he said to the people of Israel there on the beach Having been set free, they're on the Red Sea. He would say, let's keep going. What's the next step? Let's keep going. Let's press forward to what lies ahead. And I would encourage you to have that mindset as we come into this coming year. What is the next step that God is calling you to make, both in your relationship with him personally, and what is it that he's calling us? What's that next step for us as a church together? So where does God lead them? It says in chapter 15, verse 22, it says that they entered the wilderness of Shur, The next stop on this journey is a mountain, a mountain where God is going to meet the people and he's going to give them his word. We'll see that in the upcoming chapters. And they're going to enter enter into covenant with God at the foot of this mountain where God is going to speak to them. They're going to worship him there. He's going to speak to them and instruct them about what it means to be his special people who have been called to be part of his mission, his mission to reveal himself to all nations and to bring salvation to the world. But here's the thing. The path from the beach to the mountaintop leads through the desert. Now, we might prefer that it wasn't that way. I mean, it would be nice to just go from the beach to the mountaintop to the promised land with nothing in between. But just like the the people of Israel, God sometimes leads you through a desert, or let's say that's a metaphor for a a dry, a difficult season of life. And and one of the reasons is because, as we're going to see through the next through this chapter and the next one, is that there are some things that you can only learn in the desert. That was certainly true for the people of Israel, and it's certainly true for us as well. One of the things we learn from this text is that the desert doesn't always mean a wrong turn. In chapter 15, verse 22, the first verse of that section, and again, in chapter 16, verse 1, we see that God leads them, God leads them into the desert. We also read in the Gospel of Matthew, when we read about the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. And when he was baptized, you know, the Holy Spirit ascended on him as a dove and a a voice was heard like thunder saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you know what it says right after that? It says right after that, that Jesus was then led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert to be tempted for a season. Now, if that was me, I might have wondered, you know, well, wait a second, God, if you're so pleased with me, if I'm such a beloved son and you like me so much, then why are you leading me into the desert for 40 days? Like, what kind of reward is that? Like, maybe give me some tickets to the game or take me out to dinner, but lead me into the desert? That doesn't sound like a great reward for me being uh, your beloved son in whom you're well pleased. You know, every summer, my family and I, we drive out to California, we visit family, go to some conferences, and, you know, we drive through the desert for a great portion of that drive. And, you know, we try to do it at night because it gets hot in the desert. And the thing is, if your car breaks down in the desert and you don't have any water, I mean, you can be in big trouble out there. And every year, people do die in the desert, you know, I mean, uh, around the Grand Canyon. People die every year. They go on hikes, they get lost, they're unprepared, and they die in the desert. So these people not having water in the desert is a pretty big deal. It's no small thing. You know, I remember when I was in high school one time, I went hiking with some friends uh, here in Colorado, and we were, we just went hiking, and you know, you ever get that feeling where you're like, 
I feel like I'm forgetting something. And then you get up to the mountains and you're like, oh yeah, water, that's the thing I forgot, which is, you know, one of those things that it's like the only thing you really need to take with you when you go hiking around here. So, well, so we were out by St. Mary's Glacier, if you know where that is, and uh, a little ways into the trip, we just realized that we have no water. Now, thankfully, we live in Colorado and not in the desert. We were able to find a stream, and we were drink out of the stream. We got totally sick, but it was better than the alternative because not having water is deadly. And so put yourself in these people's shoes. They walked for three days in the desert, and they have no water. Now, it's easy for us to sit in our comfortable chairs with our coffee and just condescend on these people, right? And be like, oh, you bunch of whiners. It's only been three days, and God just saved you. And how can you have no faith? But you got to understand, they've got children. They've got elderly people. And they've been walking in the desert for three days. This is a real crisis. This would put anybody's faith to the test. The people are wondering, literally, they're wondering, are we going to die? Like, is this it? Is this the end? Are our kids going to die? Is this how we're going to die? Like, God just led us out of Egypt, and now we're just going to die in the desert? You know, we live in a culture which says, in a culture which believes that if you make all the right decisions in life, right? Like, if you make all the right decisions financially, health-wise, then your life will constantly be getting better. You know, your chart, it's always going to be moving up and to the right. Now, as Christians, we tend to add to that even a little bit more. And we say, hey, if I'm doing all the things that God wants me to be doing, if I'm following the Lord, if I'm serving Him, if I'm reading my Bible, if I read my Bible and pray every single day, and I marry the right person, and I do all the right stuff, then everything in my life should be constantly getting better and improving. I'll be going from, you know, the oasis to the mountaintop to the promised land with nothing in between. Everything will constantly be moving up and to the right. But as we see in this text, the simple, matter, uh, the simple fact of the matter is this. A desert doesn't always mean a wrong turn. Sometimes it's God who leads you into the desert. Sometimes God leads you into a valley, which is another metaphor for the, kind of the same thing, a difficult season in life. You know, one of the most famous psalms, most well-known psalms, is Psalm 23. It's a psalm about how God is our shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And do you remember what comes next after that? He says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, a lot of us, I think we read that and we assume that what it means is, well, valleys are inevitable and death is inevitable, but even when I'm going through that, God will be with me. But what that psalm is actually saying is, is even more profound than just that. You see, in that part of the world, the climate is a lot like, you know, Southern California or, or parts of Arizona, right, where uh, the summers get really hot and they get really dry. And so in those seasons when it gets hot and dry in the summer, you know, all the vegetation kind of burns off and dries up in the lower elevations. And so the shepherds will lead their flocks up to higher elevations, to mountains, to the high plateaus in order to feed them and... Uh, have them graze there. But you see, in order to get from the lowlands to the high plateaus, the shepherd has to lead them through dangerous areas, right? Up gullies and where there are wild animals and, and steep slopes where you can lose your footing, where you can fall backwards. And what the psalm writer is saying is this, like a shepherd, God leads us 
through these places, through the valley of the shadow of death, the danger zone. He leads us through those places sometimes. Why? In order to take us to the higher plateaus. And even though it it might be difficult, even though it might be dangerous, you can take comfort in knowing this, that he is with you, that he knows the way, and he is going to see you through all the way to the end. So what that psalm is about is about how God himself is sometimes the one who leads you through the valley. But if you believe, on the other hand, what our culture says, that a desert or a valley means that you must have done something wrong, you must have messed up, uh, and you must have made a mistake, then when you go through a situation like that, you'll be inclined to want to run away from it, to get out of it, to take things into your own hands and, and run from that situation rather than asking God in faith, God, why have you brought me here? And what is it that you're wanting to do in me or through me by bringing me to this place? You know, think about this. Is your marriage feeling dry? Don't run from it. That's what I'm telling you. Don't run from it. Are are you serving God in some way, but you feel like you're down in a valley rather than on a mountaintop? Again, I would encourage you, don't run from it. Don't let that be your response. Look at these people in our story. They were discouraged and they were worried. They were not sure if they're going to even make it through this at all. But yet, they were right where God wanted them to be. They weren't sure if they were going to even survive, but yet, they were right where God wanted them to be. Now, why would God bring them to this place and to these circumstances? And here's why. Because there are some things which you can only learn in the desert. And think about this. If you look at this uh, section, this whole desert wandering section, in the desert, these people experienced God's presence and God's provision in ways they never would have otherwise. Right? You, You don't experience the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day unless you're in the desert. You don't experience manna from heaven, water from rocks, this incredible provision by God unless you're in this situation. In the desert, they experience God's presence and his provision in ways they never had before and in ways which they never would ever again. And I think the same is true for us. A desert doesn't always mean a wrong turn. If you're walking with God and you find yourself in a desert or a valley, you might be right where he wants you to be. Now, maybe you would say, well, that might be true of some people, but it's not true of me because the reason I'm in this situation is because I did make a wrong turn. Like, I made some mistakes. I made this mess. I made this bed. Now I've got to lie in it, right? Like, the, the problem I'm in is the result of something I brought upon myself. It was some mistakes that I made. Well, here's the good news. That the way out of the desert, even if that desert is self-inflicted, the way out of the desert is the same path as the way out of the desert that God led you into. And that's this. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. So whether you got yourself into that mess or, or you got into that mess by doing all the right things, the path to take is always this. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm going to trust you with all my heart, and I'm not just going to lean on what I think seems like a good idea. So having gone for days in the desert without water, it says that the people saw this pool at Marah. And you can imagine how excited they must have been. They're thirsty. They're wondering, 
When are we going to find water? Where are we going to find water? And they see this pool up ahead. And you can imagine what they must have done. They must have run to that pool. And you can imagine them diving into it and jumping into it and just taking gulps of water, expecting to be refreshed by it, only to come up sputtering and spitting because the water was bitter. Maybe you've experienced things like that too. You dove into something expecting it to be refreshing and enjoyable, but instead, you came up with a bad taste in your mouth because it wasn't what you expected it to be. Maybe it's a job you took. Maybe it's a, it's a situation relationally in your life. Maybe it's someone, uh, something else in your life. What, whatever it is, as a result of it, you're experiencing bitterness. For many centuries, uh, Christians have looked at this passage, and in it, they have seen a picture A picture of another tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross on which Jesus hung as he paid the price for our sins. And the message is this, the cure for bitterness is the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as Moses cast that log into the bitter waters and they became sweet, if you too will cast the cross of Jesus Christ into the water of your life, you'll see how it has the power to transform bitterness into sweetness. Because the message of the cross is this, that Jesus not only died for your sins, for what the wrongs that you've done, but he also died for the wrongs which have been committed against you by other people. That person who hurt you, that person who cheated you, or who mistreated you, or disappointed you, Jesus bore those burdens. He died for those sins. He carried them on the cross. And because of that, you don't have to carry those burdens anymore. You don't have to try to make that other person pay for what they've done or make sure that they get what they deserve because Jesus already got what they deserve. He already paid that price. And because of that, you can be free. You know, it's been said that bitterness is a prison that you lock yourself up in. They say that bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will die. But the cross is the true cure for bitterness. So whether there's bitterness in your life, whether it's towards another person or towards a situation, here's the recipe. Bring the cross into that situation. See that situation in light of what Jesus has done and allow it to transform bitterness into sweetness. Check out what happened next. In uh, chapter 15, verse 27, it says that God led them to a place called Elam, which was an oasis in the desert, palm trees and springs. Here's what I want you to see. To these people who so quickly forgot his blessings, to these people who so quickly forgot his faithfulness, in the midst of their grumbling and complaining, God gave them water, shade, and steadfast love. What a God of grace this is. Look at this. He could have easily become bitter towards them, as many of us might have reacted, right? Like, these people take me for granted. They don't appreciate what I do for them. Here, I just saved them, and and they're complaining. But instead... Of becoming bitter, he leads them to an oasis to enjoy. It reminds me of what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's move on to our, our third thing that we see in this text, which is how to fight myopia and amnesia. So one of the things that we see very clearly in in these chapters that happened to them is something which can often happen to us when we're in a, you know, 
metaphorical desert or, or valley situation. And those two things are myopia and amnesia. So those of you who have glasses, you probably know that word, myopia. Myopia is a condition more commonly known as nearsightedness. And what myopia means is you can only focus on those things which are right in front of you. You can't see anything else. Amnesia, on the other hand, is a condition in which you experience partial or total loss of memory. So you can see these two things particularly in chapter 16, starting in verse 2. Right after they leave that oasis, it says that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat around pots of meat and ate bread to the full. You've brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Again, myopia, right? They can only see what's right in front of them. They can only see that problem that's right there in front of them. They can't think about anything else. They can't see anything else. And the other thing is amnesia. They've forgotten all the miracles that God just did to take care of them up until this point. And they're forgetting also, they're forgetting what Egypt was really like. They say, it would have been better, I wish God had just killed us rather than bring us out here to make us hungry in the wilderness. You know, they were hungry because, uh, you know, let's put it this way, they were hungry. And when you get hungry, what happens? You get grumpy. I don't know if that happens to you, it happens to me. I get hangry, right? It's that combination of hungry and angry and uh and although this was a crisis it's not the same as not having water like you can go for quite a while without having food i often tell my kids most of the time when you think you're hungry i think you're actually just bored like you just don't know what to do but the point is you can go for a long time without food much longer than without water and they're just they're grumpy they're hungry their blood sugar's low they're kind of worried okay are we gonna eat and they're getting not very nice to be around And I love this line. They say, man, we had it so good back in Egypt, right? Like we just sat around pots of meat all the time. We just ate until we couldn't eat anymore. It was like a buffet. It was wonderful. Egypt was great. Those were the good old days. Oh, really? And then did they, did they take your babies and murder them, right? Like, do you remember that part? Or like when they took your babies and drowned them in the river? Or when that time when Pharaoh said, hey, you know how you have to make all these bricks every day? Well, you still have to do that, but now I'm not going to give you any, any straw to do it with, which is an impossible task. So I'm going to give you an impossible task, and then I'm going to punish you every time you can't do it, which is every single day. Do you remember that? Like when you cried out to God because the, the labor was so crushing that you thought you were going to die? Those were the good old days? Like you have a serious case of amnesia. This is why in the book of Ecclesiastes, God tells us this. He says, Don't, do not say those were the good old days because they were never as good as you remember them being. You know, one of the reasons these stories are recorded for us is so that we will look at the Israelites and see ourselves in them. Because the point is this. Yeah, they were... They were being silly, and, and we realize that. It's easy to sit back and see that. They weren't trusting God, their, their circumstances, and they were just having myopia and amnesia. But on the worst of days, you and me have those same tendencies. And so we must read these stories and say to ourselves, you know, when we read the story and say, well, they shouldn't have done that, and they should have done this differently and that differently, we mustn't forget that we need to apply these things to ourselves. When we're facing a difficult situation, we also tend to get myopia, right? To fixate on that one thing, that problem that's just right there in front of you and it takes over and you can't see anything else. And we tend to get amnesia, right? Like, I just forget what's happened in the past and what God has done in the past because I'm so fixated on what might happen in the future. 
So how do you fight myopia and amnesia? Here's how. By counting your blessings. That's how you fight myopia and amnesia. By stepping back and focusing on what God has done and what he's promised to do rather than only focusing on the problem right in front of you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're told this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you are a person who's trying to figure out God's will for your life, well, here's one area where he's already made it crystal clear. Be thankful in every circumstance. That's my will for you. Now, why would God tell us to be thankful in every circumstance? I'll tell you this. It's not for him because he needs us to say thank you to him a lot. It's for our sake. It's for your sake. Because when I step back and consider why I have reasons to be thankful in every circumstance, it causes the myopia and the amnesia to disappear. You know, God says, I want you to be thankful in every circumstance because it will be good for you. It will build your faith. It will help you from getting stuck in the crazy cycle of myopia and amnesia in the midst of whatever you're going through. Now, let me make this clear. That isn't to say that everything that happens is good, right? It's not to say that every cloud has a silver lining. That's not what I'm saying because here's the thing. Some things are just plain bad. Some things are just not good. In fact, the message of the gospel actually acknowledges the badness of bad things. I mean, here's why. Because, you know, things like sickness, death, abuse, corruption, these things that are bad, they're just so bad, the Bible says, that God himself came to fight those things, to put an end to those things. So it's not, I'm not saying, and the Bible's not saying that, you know, everything's actually kind of good if you just look at it from the right angle. No, some things, no matter how you slice them, are just plain bad. That's why Jesus came. What this verse is saying is that no matter what circumstance you're facing, because of Jesus, and because of what he's done for you, and because of what awaits you because of that, you always have a reason to be thankful. And when you really get that, when it sinks down from your head down into your heart, it will help you against myopia and amnesia. And it will give you the strength to face with confidence and hope and faith whatever this life might bring your way. So the third thing we see is uh, God's delivery system, which is just enough and right on time. So just enough and right on time. After the people complained and grumbled again and they talked about how good they had it back in Egypt and they wished that God would have just killed them and never bothered saving them anyway because it was so much better there. Now, I don't know about you, but what I would expect maybe for God to say, maybe like if I was God, which we're all glad I'm not, right, is to say, you know, you ungrateful people, after all I've done for you, this is how you talk about me. I'm just going to rain down judgment upon you. But what's amazing, what's surprising, is that that's not what God said. Instead of raining down judgment upon them, God told Moses in verse 4 of chapter 16, Behold, I am going to rain down bread upon them. Even though they had terrible attitudes, even though they were completely ungrateful for what God had done for them, God chose to bless these people and give them bread. And here's what's interesting about it. He had this delivery system which uh, he goes on in the the following verses to describe the delivery system. Every morning they wake up and they have to go get it. They have to go get this bread that's going to appear. And uh, they can't take too much of it because then it'll just start to stink and it'll go moldy. 
but he's going to give them just what they need every single day for that day. Uh, it'll be just enough, and it'll be right on time. He tells Moses in, in verse 4, here's how it's going to work. Every day, I'm going to give you just enough for that day. On the sixth day, he says later on, he says, I'm going to give you enough for two days, and I'm going to let it last because I want you to rest on the Sabbath day, which is the day that God ordained for rest and for worship and recentering and refocusing. They were given just what they needed for that day. If they gathered extra, if they tried to stockpile it and hoard it, then it would go moldy, it would start to stink. This bread was called manna, which uh, we read in verse 15. When the people saw it, they said, what is this? And that's what manna means. It just means, what is this uh, in Hebrew? But this was God's delivery system. He gave them just enough and right on time. And by doing so, he was teaching them to walk by faith in him every single day. And here's what that delivery system means for you and for me. It means this. God gives us the grace we need the day we need it. God will give you the grace you need the day you need it. You know, it's been said that God gives dying grace to dying men, dying women. He doesn't give dying grace to just anybody. He gives dying grace to people who are in that situation. He gives grace to get through cancer, not just to everybody, but to people who are facing cancer. And a lot of times we panic in the desert just like they did because we think, I'm barely making it right now. How will I ever handle it if this or that happens? But here's how you will handle it. Here's how. No matter what happens to you, it'll be like manna. God will give you the grace that you need for that day, for what you're facing in that day. And like manna, you can't just stockpile it for a rainy day. Like It's not like you can just uh, be some kind of spiritual survivalist who fills your basement with beans and bottled water, right? So that if anything happens, you'll be ready. Uh, you can't do that with God's grace. But what you can do is you can come to him and he will give you the grace that you need for that day and for what you're facing that day. It'll be just enough and it'll be right on time. And this is how God provided for these people throughout their entire time in the desert. Originally, by the way, this wilderness wandering was only supposed to last for one year. That was the plan. Now, in the end, some of you might know, this trip ends up lasting for 40 years. And how that happened and why that happened is a different story for a different day. But here's what I want to show you. At the end of that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right before the people entered the promised land, Moses gave a speech. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is, by the way. It's Moses' farewell speech at the end of his life, right before the people enter into the promised land. And he's, as he does it, he's reflecting on all that they went through throughout the time that God saved them and throughout their wandering in the wilderness and what God taught them. And he's reflecting on it and he's making some application and he's telling them what to do moving forward. But here's what he says about the manna in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, he, that's God, he humbled you and let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make, known, uh, he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, from the mouth of the Lord. Here's what he's saying. God did it that way, you know, this, this delivery system, every day giving you what you needed just enough, right on time. He did that in order to teach you reliance upon him and not reliance upon yourself. He taught you to rely upon him every day rather than relying upon yourself. And then he goes on in verse four of that chapter. I love this. He says, throughout all the years in the desert, your clothes never wore out 
and your feet did not swell. The fact that their feet did not swell speaks to the fact that they were healthy. They had proper nutrition. They had enough water. That's amazing. A lot of times they had no idea where the next meal is going to come from. They had no idea if they're going to have water to drink. They're wandering in a dry desert. But in the end, they were able to look back and say, God always provided. That didn't mean they didn't always panic. They usually panicked. But in the end, they were able to look back and say, our clothes never wore out and our feet never swelled up. We were healthy. We had everything we needed. God always showed up just in time and gave us just enough. You know, we might like it if it worked differently, right? Like if he showed up like a couple weeks in advance so that we don't have to worry, we don't have to panic, we always know how everything's gonna work out. But here's the thing. He gives you the grace that you need, the day that you need it. Why? So that you will learn to rely upon him and not upon yourself. Last point here is this. The bread that does not perish. In, uh, you know, one of the only miracles that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, there are only a couple, and one of those is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And John's gospel records this story in the gospel of John chapter 6. And one of the characteristic features of John's gospel is this. Because John wrote later than some of the other gospel writers, some of the other gospel manuscripts were already in existence when John began writing his gospel, John wanted to include some of the details that he remembered from Jesus' life and from being with Jesus, which the other Gospels hadn't recorded. And that's why a lot of the stories in John are not found in the other ones, because John said, well, those stories have already been told. I want to tell you some other things that happened that I saw. And so when John tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000, he includes some details which the other uh, Gospel writers don't include. And part of the reason is because John was actually there with Jesus. And so he tells us uh, that the next day after that had happened, you know, Jesus crossed over the lake and there was a storm. You know that story, he calmed the storm. But some people came around the lake. They followed Jesus o- over to the other side of the lake because they saw that he had done this miracle or they had heard about it and they wanted to see Jesus do more miracles. And so they found him and they said, hey, can you do some more miracles for us? And Jesus said, you know what? You guys are so interested in food which perishes. Like I made food yesterday for everybody and you guys are so enamored by that. But he says, instead of being interested in the food which perishes, You should be interested in the food which gives eternal life. That's the food that I really came to give you. And I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot better than a little bit of fish and some bread. And these people said, well, well, hey, here's the reason we want to see signs and miracles. Because we want proof that you really are someone special who has come from God. And they said, for example, Moses had a sign. His sign was manna from heaven. And This is how Jesus replied to that. John chapter 6, starting verse 32. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then he goes on from verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. What's Jesus doing? He's reaching back to the story from Exodus where God provided manna from heaven to sustain the people. Now Jesus shows up and he says, every one of you, you know what? You have an even greater need than you yourself realize. You have an even more fundamental need than the need for food and water. And the Father has sent me to meet that need. That need is the need for forgiveness of your sins. It's the need to be made right with God. It's the need to be brought back into relationship with God. What does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? And so just as he did with the people of Israel, rather than raining down judgment upon us, that we might deserve it, God has rained down grace and loving kindness upon us. And he's given us Jesus, the true bread from heaven, the bread of life to provide for our greatest need, the need to be redeemed and made right with God so that we can know true joy and have real life and a hope which outshines the sun and fills our deepest longings of our soul. Jesus, sent by the Father, took your place in death so that you could have life. And the question which all of us must answer, is this. Will you receive that bread from heaven given for you, which is Jesus Christ? Would you stand with me and let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for this bread from heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you rain down upon us. You offer us the bread of life instead of judgment. And Lord, we, we pray, I pray that everyone here today would receive that. I pray if there's anyone here today who's here and they say, you know what, I'm not sure if I have ever really committed my life to following Jesus. I'm not sure really actually where I'm at with embracing the gospel. Lord, I pray that as they they consider this story and they hear those words of Jesus, Lord, that you would work in their heart and bring them to that place where they say, I'm ready. I'm ready to say yes. I'm ready to follow him wherever he would lead me, even if it means that he leads me through the wilderness from time to time. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in a place that feels like a valley, a wilderness. Lord, I pray that you would teach us in these situations. Help us not to run. Help us to trust. Lord, because you are the good shepherd. So Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for the life that we have because of Jesus. I pray that all of us would receive that today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. From our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.